0: Shri Gauri Vaishnava Guru Paramparaki jai Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai Last night we spoke a little bit about devotees, so tonight and for the greater balance of the time that I'm here, I want to speak about the demons. <laughs> and um, this is, of course, the way in which uh, much of the scripture works. Bhagavatam, for example, begins by telling us what Janma Vayad Itaratas Cha That um, the book is about the absolute truth it will be discussed both directly and indirectly. So, there's one way to understand that by speaking directly about bhakti and indirectly about bhakti by speaking about what bhakti is not by speaking directly about the Lord and the divine and the devotees. God separates Krishna from his devotees and indirectly about Krishna and his devotees by speaking about that which is not divine and not devotional. So some discussion of the demonic will be helpful. Bhakti Thakur recommended that actually as an appropriate approach to Krishna-lila. Because if we had to enter into Krishna-lila, then we cannot go, as I like to say, with our shoes on. We have to leave them at the door. So we have to leave something behind, and that is the burden of ignorance that we're carrying. And ignorance is, of course, the, the basis of what we might call demonic life. So, a little bit of that in all of us, and to uproot that, that is important and essential in order to enter into the pure light of Krishna consciousness. So, the way in which Bhaktivinoda Thakur spoke about that was by way of recommending some discussion of Krishna's pastimes involving his killing of the, of the demons, so which is a considerable part of this manifest Leela. But before we discuss the Leela, we should discuss a little philosophy. So we'll hear directly from Krishna himself speaking about this in Bhagavad Gita. And those of you who are students of Bhagavad Gita know that this topic comes up particularly in the 16th chapter. While the last six chapters of the Gita to a large extent, are about metaphysical worldview that Krishna presents. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 are a shift within those six chapters from speaking directly about the metaphysical reality to practical idea, practical life, within that metaphysical reality. So such things, for example, such discussion would include the social-religious reality um, and um, scriptural adherence in particular in this chapter and and morality, the difference between good and bad. The previous chapter, just previous to chapter 16, it's called Purushottam Yoga. So Krishna describes the Supreme Person himself And so here now in chapter 16, he begins to describe how to approach himself. First the sadhya, the goal is described, then the sadhana, the means to attain that. We have to have, after all, our eye on the goal, and that is our inspiration. We should have our eye on the goal in such a way as it causes causes us to focus on that which is necessary to arrive there not that we just have our eye on the goal and imagine ourselves there artificially and inappropriately you no know, we have to go there practically and that may mandate acting quite differently than what one might think just by hearing about the goal it might mandate a type of life that's a little different than what the goal sounds like I remember thinking how wonderful and glorious the krishna sankirtan must be hearing the description of chaitanya mahaprabhu's sankirtan bowing and chanting in ecstasy and dancing and thousands of people joining and so forth and the one i first went on sankirtan it wasn't exactly like that <laughs> <laughs> thousands of people weren't joining and some of them were not even friendly and sometimes we would meet with considerable op- opposition. I got a very quick kind of reality check. This is the goal. This is Sankirtan Mahaprabhu was given. When the devotees came from Nabadwip. 200-some devotees, intimate associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, to Puri, they had heard, Chaitanya Dev has returned, Nimai Pandit, as they knew him, who would become Shri Krishna Chaitanya, Great sannyasi, and come to Puri and conquered the, the kingdom. A very fortified kingdom, as I've mentioned before, under the Raj Pratap Rudra. The, the Muslim influence could not penetrate there while they were actually in charge in Bengal. You know that they tried to stop Mahaprabhu's son Kirtan there. Chand Kazi came, had his men break the drum, Murdunga. And he made it, he outlawed Sankirtan and so forth. Of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu rose to the occasion and heartened all the devotees by his personal example. And they marched with torchlight, hundred thousand men and women to the Chandkazi's place performing Nam Sankirtan. But in, in Orissa, Jagannath Puri, in the state of Orissa, then King Prataparudra, he had such a fortified kingdom that the Muslims couldn't enter there. But Nimai Pandit, as Sri Krishna Chaitanya, having taken sannyas, went there. He converted the whole, the whole town. Pratapurudramarsh was a beggar to have the darshan, the audience of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So this kind of news, of course, was rippling back to Navadvipa. That's why Sachi Mata asked, after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu took sannyas, she made a request. Generally, if a, person takes the renounced order of life, then they leave their family. But Mahabhava was very much a family man. <laughs> and his sannyasis, as we know, is very artificial. It was a ploy for preaching. Not that he wasn't, not that he was a bogus sannyasi, he was the strictest of all sannyasis. Sannyasis by Rāgya and jñāna, detachment and knowledge, these things go together, of course. If we have knowledge, then We, To that extent, we will not pursue our interest, which is happiness, that we need some knowledge to to arrive at. We will not pursue our interest in relation to things that don't endure because we want enduring happiness. So knowledge is followed or wedded to detachment. Mahabrabhu was the perfect sannyasi and extremely knowledgeable. That is, uh, knowledge and detachment are two of the six opulences that Bhagavan is possessed of and, and by which God is sometimes defined who has all six opulences in full. Wealth, strength, fame, knowledge, beauty and detachment, renunciation. So when God becomes a sannyasi then sannyasis become, look like enjoyers in comparison he scared the other sannyasis, and so many of them uh, older than him, senior to him, they were frightened by his renunciation. Renunciation and very and very practical renunciation. Parmananda puri or not Parmananda, who is that one? Brahmananda Bharati. Mahaprabhu had come to Bengal from Bengal to Puri I should say. And then he went travelling to South India for preaching, and then he returned. So it was upon his return the news came to Bengal to Mother Sachi Mother Sachi had asked when her son took sannyas in madness and then was collected up by Advaita and Sachi came to Advaita's place and Mahabrabhu awoke from his trance and said oh what have I done in madness I've taken sannyas left my mother who's a widower and my beautiful wife and all of my friends but I'll have to, have to live up to it now, but Sachi Mata asked that rather than go to Vrindavan, as he desired, please go to Puri, that is a holy place, but it is nearby and we'll get news from you there, I'll be able to hear some news on a regular basis and I'll have some solace then, so of course he agreed, he went to Puri, he went to and he came back and news was then coming, he has returned, he's returned, all these devotees were coming, 200-some devotees from Bengal coming to meet Mahāprabhu. Again, as I was saying, his detachment was very extreme. He made even the sannyāsīs afraid. Such a perfect sannyāsī he was. When Brahmananda Bharati came, dressed in a deerskin, Chaitanya Mahāprabhu said, Where is Brahmananda Bharati? I don't see him. Śrīpādāmira said, Oh, he's right here. Oh, that can't be him. Brahmananda Bharati would never wear a deerskin. Deer skin would be it's pretty austere to dress in a deer skin. <laughs> and uh Chitani Mahabhu was more detached, more austere. His idea was this wearing this deer skin to attract some attention, thinking you're very austere. that people will think, oh he's very austere, he only wears deer skin. So Brahmananda Burk said, Oh Mahāprabhu has understood my mind. He changed his cloth to a simple dress, and Mahaprabhu said, oh, there's Brahmananda Bharati. So at any rate, in Puri, this is on the occasion of Mahaprabhu's returning, the devotees were coming, Parmananda Puri came, Brahmananda Bharati came, and so forth. Swarup damodar came, Govinda came, and Mahaprabhu's group was assembling in Puri for his sannyasa leela. And as the news was brought, To Navadweep, and so many devotees came from Navadweep. And when Raj Prataparudra, the king of Puri, saw them coming and performing Sankirtan as they entered into Jagannath Puri, he said, What kind of kirtan is this? What kind of dancing? What kind of chanting? What kind of preem? I've never seen anything like this before. And we have to understand this in context because he's the king of Puri. And Puri is primarily a... a a, Its livelihood is based on pilgrimage. So uh, it's a spiritual uh, tourist town. Everyone is coming to have the darshan of Jagannath from all over India. Thousands and thousands of pilgrims performing kirtan, singing, dancing, offering prayers and so forth. So he was not unacquainted with... Pilgrims coming from a foreign place and worshipping Jagannath. This was quite common to him. But he said, I would never seen any worship like this, any kirtan like this, dancing like this. What is it? What kind of love do they have? And Sarvabhambhattacarja said, Oh, this, this is the uh, creation of Chaitanya himself. It's called premsan-kirtan. Chaitanya-shrishti premsan-kirtan. So the preem sankirtan sankirtan is sadhya means the means the way and sankirtan is the goal also gopis are also doing sankirtan singing the names of Krishna Krishna's cowards fra- friends singing names of Ram and Krishna mother Jasoda making the whole life of Krishna is made into song and they're singing lila kirtan nam kirtan. That is Prem Sankirtan. But we right now we cannot perform Prem Sankirtan. But we can perform Sankirtan as a means. And then the two there's a little difference. We will perform out of some sense of duty, obligation as as with determination in our sadhana, our practice, our given by our Gurudev with some determination we'll apply ourselves and there will be opposition if not from outside, from within. Opposition from the mind and the senses who have oppressed us for so long, kept us as captives, prisoners, chained, shackled, tortured and not so willing to let us go. Not easily. In fact, to become free from the shackles of the mind and senses, that is impossible. Krishna said that in the Gita. Māmevaye prapadyante He said, the impossible becomes possible by bringing me into the picture. I can do the impossible. So if you invite me into your life, into your heart, and Mahabharata was shown the way to do this through Damsan Kirtan. Then the mind and senses meeting their master. His name is Rishikesha. So Rishi means the senses. Esha means master. So master of the senses. When he's in, we are not the master of Maya. We are not the master of anything. And Krishna is the master of everything. We we may be. In constitution, we may be superior to matter. We are consciousness. Matter is inert. But not without any power. It has power. has the backing of Bhagavan. If we do not recognize his backing, his power, then material nature will take power, have precedence over us. Not being the master of anything, we cannot master maya. But it's, this is Vishnu maya. This is very powerful. There's no hope. But if we invite Krishna into our life, we invite the master of the, the mind and senses, then they will naturally fall into place. This is, the, this is the endeavor that we should make. Endeavor to cry. Endeavor to invite Krishna. That is a, a big endeavor, to pray. You think study is hard, praying is harder. To <laughs> exercise the heart. We should exercise our intellect and study according to our capacity so that we understand the importance of exercising our heart. It's, it's atrophied, like frozen over. So to soften that and exercise that, to pray. It is Sankirtan, actually. It is the supreme prayer. So to do it with, in a heartfelt way, to bring about a change. This is required. And the beginning of that change is the removal of so many unwanted things in our life, misplaced values and the activities that correspond with, with the pursuance of those false values. We call this these false values anarthas. And then, and as I say, some theoretical understanding of what is actually art and what is actually valuable. So the first change would be that. These things are going away. And then the kind of things that we hear about in Krishna Leela and Gaur Leela that happens when you do Sankirtan, then those things will become the norm in our life. So in the beginning there will be some difference between Sankirtan as sadhya, as a means, as a as a method, and Sankirtan as the goal. So if we hear about the goal, we may become very attracted, but then we have to hear about the goal in such a way that, as I say, we can focus our attention on the way to go there. And that requires then making some sacrifice, changing our life. Some sincerity is required, some determination is required, all these things. There will be opposition. And as I say, if not from without, opposition from within will be there. It is said in Kali Yuga that there's a devotee and a demon inside of everyone. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, you know, he didn't, he didn't kill any demons like Krishna, but he's said to have uh, killed the demonic tendency in those whom he came in touch with. So, some discussion about removing the unwanted things, the demons in our life, that is very useful. So here in chapter 16, this is focused on As I said, Krishna spoke in chapter 15 about the Supreme Person and now he's going to start to speak about practical things that are important in terms of going there. So some discussion about what is not godly. He's spoken about what is godly and what is the supreme of old. And now what is ungodly will be discussed at some length. This chapter gives some emphasis on on the ungodly that uh, hasn't, hasn't come thus far in the Gita. Many sections about the godly and about the de- nature of the devotees and so forth, and of course it's discussed in this chapter as well. But the major part of the emphasis is on the demonic. So, it, indirectly, talking about the uh, the ideal by talking about what it is not, and we should try to see in a practical way how much of what is not bhakti is within us, and then engage in practice in such a way that to, to see that that's changing, that's departing from us. This would be very very practical. So one of the things that Krishna stresses in this chapter while discussing morality in the sense of discussing good and, e- and evil is that those who are good, the divine, and those activities that are appropriate, and of a divine nature. We can find out about them through revelation. This is a, a very prominent means of uh, finding direction in life, and of course, revelation here refers to the scripture. So in the very first verse, Krishna describes the, the qualities of the, of the divine, and a careful study of that, we see that he's describing the activities of different types of persons influenced in different ways by material nature that means those influenced by sattvagun by rajagun by tamagun and combinations thereof and we find in in the scripture that there are activities recommended for different types of persons influenced as I say in, in different ways by these modes of material nature so these These good and divine qualities and activities, uh, we can reference them from this body of uh, revealed knowledge. So in the very beginning, by speaking about the divine in that way, the first verse of the chapter corresponds with the last verse of the chapter, which tells us that those who act whimsically and without regard for revealed knowledge, they can never be happy they will not know perfection they will not be happy they will not attain the highest ultimate destination I've said before in a very general sense we should understand the principle of hearing from Shastra like this that in order to be perfectly happy which all of us would like we have to have Perfect knowledge, which will then we'll, our actions in pursuance of happiness will be well informed. But we don't have perfect knowledge, and we are steeped in imperfection, and therefore we are not happy to a large extent. And so it stands to reason that if perfect knowledge does exist, that it it's uh, it's worshipable by us. It's uh, venerable. It's not a dead thing. It's alive. And so if we approach the idea that there is perfect knowledge with a respectful attitude, a venerable attitude, with the request that such knowledge might reveal itself, rather than try to evolve that perfect knowledge from within imperfection by imperfect means, the appeal to the infinite to reveal itself to the finite, that's very... That is uh, the perfect uh, perfect idea, how to approach the infinite. Do you follow me? Peter Marsh gave that nice example. That if the finite is to know the infinite, how is it possible? How can the finite know the infinite? If the infinite, out of its infinite capacity, chooses to reveal itself to the finite, then that which would otherwise be impossible becomes possible. So to go beyond the finite and enter into that which is the infinite conception. Finite conception of life is a material conception of life. It's limited, it's calculated. And it's kind of it's kind of predictable. Kind of. There's much that's predictable predictable about it and and to that extent it's it's static. It's said that history repeats itself. Puna punas charvita charvananam. It's the same thing again and again. Prahlad is chewing the chewed. When we were kids, we would chew bubble gum in school, and then when it would, the sweetness would be gone, we'd stick it underneath the desk and look for something else to do. When we getting bored, we'd try the gum again. So something like that. Hmm. Of course, Krishna Leela, we'll find it goes over and over and over again in a circle. But every time new, no. every time that Leela happens, that Leela comes around in a circle. Mother Yashoda and, and Nanda Maharaj are thinking, I wish we could have a son. We, we, we would like to have a son. The whole of the Braj, their king, king of the cowherds, Nanda Maharaj, they are so pleased with him. So magnanimous he is to live under such guidance. Unimaginable. The eldest son is usually the heir to the throne. So, when Parjanya Maharaj, Nanda Maharaj's fa- father, gave the heir to the thr- to the throne to his eldest son, what was his name? Abhinandan? Then, the first act that his son, the new king of the cowherds, performed was to transfer the kingdom to the middle son, Nanda Maharaj. He said, after all, I'm only a little Nanda, Abhinanda. Nanda means, Nanda means joy, Ananda. All of Pārjanya's sons were, their names stemmed from this root, joy. And uh, of hmm? Upananda, yeah, was his older brother's name, Upananda. All the names stemmed from the root, joy, and Nanda was the, the best of them he became the king of all of such a noble king but the kingdom had only one anxiety what was that anxiety that the king himself didn't have a son he didn't have a daughter either no heir to the throne so this was their concern and they they wanted to have a son the whole kingdom wanted a son they prayed for that and of course eventually then son came Nanda Sutta, Yashoda Nandan, this son. And so joyful the kingdom became, so joyful Nanda and Yashoda became. And after some time, of course, at about 10 years old, 10 or 11, Krishna left the kingdom. Nanda Maharaj accompanied him to Mathura with the promise that he'd bring him back. But he came back, Nanda Maharaj, without him. He got a little bewildered by the city people. Devaki and Yashoda, or Devaki and Vasudev, who said, Oh, it's time for your son to get an education. He has to stay here and get a little schooling. They fast talked him in the city, and Nanda came back empty handed. And then the separation began. And that separation reached such a pitch that at at one point they became so mad, Nanda and Yashoda, that they thought, we had a son, he was so perfect, now he's gone, now we don't have a son. In their madness they started to think, do we have a son? Were we, or was that just a dream, that we had such a son? Who could have such a son? That son is more perfect than Narayan, that's not possible. We never had a son, we were just dreaming about that. We should have a son. In this way the Leela starts over again. It's going like this in a circle again and again every one of those pastimes is performed again and again and again and again and every time they're performed what is it like? Like it's the first time Like it never ever happened before dynamic ever fresh that is their experience What to speak of every pastime every moment of seeing Krishna this is anurag in anurag Every moment of seeing Krishna is like, I've never seen him before. So beautiful. And material life, basically, we're seeing the same few elements, just packaged a little differently. That is the difference. Material life is the real substance, and here we have only good packaging. There, the wrapper, the substance, all the same. <laughs> it's better than it looks. Here is it. we can make it look good we should try so this is material life again and again puna punas charvita, charvananam. same thing static chewing the chewed it is not fresh we are steeped in imperfection we want perfect knowledge we want to be perfectly happy Not that we have a standard of happiness that's just a temporary mitigation of distress that pervades our life. If we want to arrive at that, we have to have a perfect method. If we want to go beyond the finite, the stale, which is just the same thing over and over again, just moving the the chairs, moving the furniture, just changing the furniture. If we want to go beyond that finite conception of life and enter into the reality of the infinite. The finite conception of life, as I said, is only a conception, only an idea. The idea that we can capture everything in the fist of our intellect. But it's not possible. So, if we are to go beyond that, we have to have a perfect means. This is the perfect means, then. We petition, feelingly, the infinite to reveal himself to us. Then we come on his terms to enter into the, the finite conception, we're, infinite conception I should say, we're in, land of infinite possibilities. Anything is possible. We have this sense from our childhood, anything is possible. But in this world we, we grow up and we are taught that was just a childhood fantasy. But we have news that that, 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 is a, that is the reality. There's a place where nothing is impossible. Prabhupada like to quote I think it was Bonaparte Napoleon who said impossible that is a word in a fool's dictionary. See what he did in France. French French Revolution, right? Against insurmountable odds. Why should we be discouraged? in our pursuit of krishna consciousness look at people just materially who have some idea like napoleon what he did was impossible to become the emperor of, of france and beyond absolutely impossible who would have ever thought it was possible but he had a, an ideal he had determination he pursued that our ideal is so much better and it's logical it's possible actually it makes sense It's the only thing that makes sense. Sometimes it may seem that the odds are insurmountable that we have to go against in order to be successful. But then we're not thinking very clearly. Who is Krishna? What is his nature? He's a supreme controller. But how does he control? What is the difference between Brahma's control and Shiva's control? and between Shiva's control and Vishnu's control and between Vishnu's control and Krishna's control, Brahma's controlling, controlling physically, mentally with the creation in his foreheads. Brahma's thinking about it a lot, how to control, how to organize. His foreheads are constantly moving like that. And Shiva's controlling in another way. How does Shiva control? By stopping from thinking. That is his method. He's more powerful than Brahma. He stopped thinking, doing meditation. And stop thinking means stop working, right? He stopped working, simply sitting. His dress, ashes from the fire, his uh, jewelry, skulls and bones, <laughs> it means he has no interest in the, the movement, in pursuance of things that are temporary because he's seen through them. They're all skull and bones. What did that, As a poet, Sridhar Maharaj like to quote, the pomp, the glory, all that one may in this world attain, he said it leads but to the grave she in the cremation ground wearing the skulls and bones. Is he crazy? No. <laughs> he's thought very very deeply more deeply than Brahma and he's realized this thinking is this, this should be should be stopped and the movement that follows such thinking and pursuance of temporary things because if you slow down and look carefully you see through it all. All just bones it's all rotting, in other words, the whole thing. And Vishnu controlling in another way, then. Vishnu is decorated with so many beautiful things and so on. But that's not like ordinary people in the material world. He's the supreme godhead, the supreme master. As a perfect king, he's ruling. And Krishna is still another way. His ruling is by love by affection to the extreme this is the way he's controlling everything indeed he is controlled by love <laughs> how is Brahma controlling how is Shiva controlling and how is Vishnu controlling how Krishna is controlling and how Radha is controlling Krishna this is Gauri of love is supreme that is the idea so then why should we be discouraged at any point? Why should we think logically that the odds against us are insurmountable, that the course is difficult? When our, our goal, our ideal, the person whom we are approaching is controlled by love and affection, rules by affection. So we haven't got to have any power or ex- expertise. Everyone knows how to love. We're born with some capacity to love we have to exercise that only and when we do we feel happiness so we shouldn't be discouraged to approach the infinite then everything is possible and this is the way we'll approach him with affection that will attract him so if we want perfect knowledge then we should worship uh, perfection this is the idea then perfection will reveal itself to us. This is the idea of revelation. This is the idea of Scripture in a broad way. It means that perfect knowing and perfect happiness will be arrived at by a perfect method. And the perfect method is worship, love, that anyone can do in any condition of life. There's no material requirements, no physical material requirements, no intellectual Or uh, mental prowess just an exercise of the heart so here in this chapter Krishna emphasizes that that the activities of the godly they're enjoined in 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 revelation in scripture and that if we want a godly life a happy life if we want perfection if we want to attain the ultimate destination which was described in the previous chapter na tad bhāśa yate surya naśāśaṅkuna pābhaka nivartante tad dāma paramamama Burst that stuck out in Krishangi's mind when she read chapter 15 in your Gita section huh, it's pretty clear, she said one never falls from there yad gatvāna nivartante tad dāma paramamama there's no coming down from that place <laughs> Upon going there, one never returns. There was some controversy about that, apparently. What is its nature? It's effulgent, naturally. It's like 24-hour sun. (laughs) It means also that it cannot be illumined. From this place, we cannot cast light on that by what is available from this land of darkness, we cannot shed light on that. Again, this is what we're talking about. It will shed light on us. If it chooses to reveal itself to us, then it can be known. Nothing from this side that we can do. If we could do anything from this side, it's something that's that resembles what that's about. That means exercise of the heart, however faint that is, giving, sacrificing... It is the underpinning of the whole plane of illuminate illumined life, Goloka. Live and illumined by this giving selflessness, sacrifice, love. Here in human life we can start to do something like that. We can exercise our heart. This possibility awakens in human life. So... That goal, that that place was described there. Here he says you cannot go there without going on its terms. And its terms are that it reveals the means to go there. It reveals what is good, what are the, the, the divine qualities and the divine activities. And it does so in consideration of our involvement in ignorance, very kind of precisely, because our involvement in, in, in ignorance is varied. We're influenced by sattva-guna, raja and in different ways and at different times and so forth over different lives. And so we should have regard for revealed knowledge. Now, it's important to note at the same time that this revealed knowledge in the form of scripture is very um, alive and dynamic So it's not simply a question of memorizing some verses, some dogma. I heard some three classes given by three sannyasis on tape the other day in a different group and they were all speaking the philosophy. Everything they said was correct. There was no... In those particular classes, I noted, there was, no, there was no insight. There was no realization being offered. It was repeating some information, some dogma. It may have value at some point, to some extent. But if we really hear that revelation, then it should give us dynamic thinking. And it calls upon us for something much more than just memorization and gathering information. It calls upon us to exercise our intelligence, to come to an understanding of its conclusions in a dynamic way for application according to different time, place, and circumstance. So it's important to us to understand this about Scripture. Prabhupada used to say, everything's there in the Scripture, and and this is the perfect way of knowing, and so forth. And we would take it in a simple way. But in time, intelligent disciples of his grew to understand, hmm, they have to think about this a little dynamically because it says this over here, it says this over there. These two points contradict one another. It says a third thing over here. And sometimes it says things for certain reasons to, to elicit a certain response. And while it's, well, it's really after the response, people may mis- misunderstand And just identify with what it says, like Prabhupada used to give the example. Mother says to the sick child, Oh, open your mouth, I'll give you this candy. But the candy is actually medicine. But the child won't take the medicine, because it tastes bitter. So the mother says, take this, have some candy, open your mouth. Puts the medicine in. Sometimes scripture also speaks like this. Is it deceiving us? No. We have to understand what it's saying. And therefore, as we discussed last night, the association of devotees who understand the Scripture in a dynamic way, that is most important to us. Another very prominent, and more prominent even, body of revelation, the living, active agent of divinity to accompany the passive agent of Scripture, therefore the commentaries. And then commentaries on the commentaries and commentaries on those commentaries and this way it goes on and on it's a dynamic living thing Prabhupada used to give the example and I've said to you before and I want to stress it here to you because it's very important he used to give the example of the law books in society there would be a body of law contained in books and he said a scripture is like that so if you know the law books and you go to court and you're the attorney then you can cite the law then you can win the case. But if you just go before the judge and say, I, fee- I believe he's innocent, Your Honor, that won't go very far if the other person is citing the law books and so forth. Good example, but now if we look at that example carefully, we realize how the law books are cited at different times determines what the law is. Do you follow? The law book says this, but what the law is, what the import of that is, that may be something different and dynamic. According to different, the law said this, and it was applied this way at this time. Therefore, in consideration of this instance, at this time, the law should be applied this way. And that, in consideration of this law, which is applied that way over here, and so forth. So it's a very, even in, in an ordinary sense, the citing of the, the law books is uh, uh, very dynamic and open to new insight. So with these scriptures, so, it's to, so we should think of it like this. Not to think of it in the static way. Some book, I read it before, I know it. Is. why should I go over that? And if you read it and you contemplate and think about it in, in, in the company of others, you find new insight all the time. What is being said? These things are not compiled by ordinary people. Very extraordinary and divine insight behind Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita and the books of the Goswamis and so forth. They have great power in them. You can live inside the pages. It is mentioned, what is it? Bhagavatam says, yatad visago yasmin It's another creation altogether. Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur commenting, I believe, on that verse, he said, the Bhagavatam is like a Vaikuntha planet within the material world. So you can enter into Vaikuntha live in the pages of Srimad Bhagavatam and view the world from that perspective. This is being recommended in this chapter, actually. To be governed, to be guided in our life by revelation. This is the way of the divine. And again, it doesn't mean, oh, just a bunch of rules have been cited down here and you've got to follow those and live within that, and if you don't, you're a demon. No. Actually, study the chapter here. Krishna first gives a list of the divine qualities. Then he gives a list of some basic uh, qualities that are not divine. Bimanas vimanaschakra, porushami agyanam, chabi, partha He says this is the way of the asuras, the proud, the hypocrites, conceited. Anger. They have harsh speech. Ignorance. And then he tells Arjuna, But Arjuna, don't worry. He says, Masucha. Don't worry. Why? Because you're a devotee. What does it mean? Krishna mentions all these divine qualities. And then he mentions four or five qualities of the demons. He will go on and speak for some twelve verses about other qualities of the demons, but he mentions four or five, after listing about ten or fifteen qualities of the divine, and, and then he tells Arjun, don't worry, you're a devotee. What does it mean? It means that Arjun, who's a devotee, is thinking, oh, I must be a demon. I hear about all those divine qualities, and I don't see any of those in me. It tends to minimize. He hears one quality of the devotee like He has purity of heart. Arjuna thinks, I can't be pure of heart. What am I doing in this war? Why am I fighting? I'm a fighter. How can that be pure? He minimizes all in his mind, any of the good qualities. Then he hears the bad qualities, and he thinks, oh, that must be me. Now, that doesn't sound good from a psychological point of view. It might be a problem. But, you understand, that's not what Krishna's recommending here. (laughs) some type of um, poor sense of self-esteem, something like that. Hmm? But the sense that as one becomes pure, that he or she sees any impurity within themselves, and that becomes magnified, that they're really concerned with uprooting that. Arjuna is doing things in war like he has to get angry. Here Krishna says, anger, that's the quality of the demons. So then Arjuna's thinking, that's me. I get angry. So what is the implication of this? The first word he uses here, uh, Parapit translates it as hypocrisy. Domba. Domba. Hypocrite. So what is a a classical hypocrite? The classical hypocrite hypocrite appears good, but is actually bad. Appears religious, gives him charity, holds even religious festivals, may be the case, but is a hypocrite inside. So it means that on the outside one may show divine qualities, but inside may be rotten to the core. This is the idea to understand the scripture in a, in a deeper way, in a dynamic way. Arjuna Krishna's calling for that here. As he advocates you should follow scripture, this is where you'll find, where you'll find the way of the divine life, at the same time, he's saying, but you have to look inside there. Don't just collect information. You have to look deeply and understand it dynamically. Apply it. It means that at different times and different circumstances, what may have been divine to act in this way, overtly, in a previous time, may not be so at another time. It's possible to some extent. And of course, in this, we, we, we need some guidance and some common sense. So we should all be very practical people with common sense and not just be morons following some rules and regulations and not understanding the meaning of them. That's demonic. Krishna says, that will destroy bhakti. He says it very clearly, just following all these things without understanding the meaning and misapplying and offending other people in the name of it and so on and so forth. This will destroy your bhakti. So don't let that happen to you. At the same time, in the name of being dynamic and so forth, you have to know what the subject is. <laughs> well, early on, after I um, began preaching outside of ISKCON, then one student who's, who's passed away since then, he was a smart fellow, but I had him give class one, one morning and I listened, and so he started to, he wanted to talk like me and be uh, somewhat dynamic in his interpretation. I had to stop him in the middle of the class and tell him he just Krishna consciousness went out the door <laughs> along with his dynamism and so forth. So we have to be a little careful that that doesn't happen. That means we have to understand the teaching also, what is the theory. Sridhar told us, your Guru Maharaj has, has told you not to think so that he could put so many things inside of you. Now he's gone, now you should start to think and apply those things in a thoughtful way. Time has come for that. He coached us in that, as I'm coaching you. So Arjun tells, so Krishna tells Arjun, so don't worry Arjun. And this is, in one sense, the essence of the Gita. In the beginning of the Gita, you may know when Krishna began to speak, what did he tell Arjun? He also told him, don't worry. At the end of the Gita he said, Sarvadan pratajamami come Sharanam Braja. Ham tum Sarva Shami Ma Sucha. Again. He said, Don't worry. Here he says that we're near the conclusion of the Gita. Don't worry. He said, Don't worry, you're a devotee. Everything will be all right. Start with this. And and conversely, the demons, they're always worrying. Like Kangsa. He worried himself. To death. Didn't he? We'll have to discuss that as we come to the, to the Leela. The practically speaking of worried himself to death. That's how he died. So don't spend too much time worrying about your maintenance. How will you go on? Devotee is a sharanagata. He has, she has faith. And faith is expressed externally in the form of sharanagati being surrendered and What is the essence of Sharanagati? What is the swarup lakshan, the primary characteristic of Sharanagati? Sharanagati is described by Bhakti Vinod, before him in Ramayudya Sampradaya, as being sixfold, and by Rupa Goswami, sixfold. Anukulyasasambha <laughs> kalpa patikulyasavajanam rakshikshatiti visvashve gopitve varanam tatha Shadvidha sharanagati. Accepting things favourable, rejecting the unfavourable. Thinking that Krishna will protect me. As the cowards marched into the mouth of Agasura, I thought, Krishna will protect us. Gopradve tatha. Krishna is my maintainer. And humility and self resignation, resigning oneself to Krishna. The center of this is Tata. Krishna is my maintainer. I'm giving myself to Krishna. I'm giving my life to serve Krishna. So naturally he will maintain me. In reality, he's maintaining everyone anyway. He is the maintainer. He is the sustainer. So what to speak of me? I'm his devotee. His servant master has to maintain his servants. He has to maintain me. It means even after annihilating the whole world and He stops maintaining it, I'll be maintained. Even when the sun burns out, I don't have to worry. This is Sarnagati. Therefore, this is in one sense the essence of the Gita. Krishna says it in the beginning. When He speaks, don't worry. In the end, He says it. Here, He's saying it somewhere near the end as well. Don't worry. Krishna will maintain you. So you don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Spend a lot of time on trying to serve Krishna. And validate this for yourself. See how he will maintain you. You try it. Then the the invisible Krishna will become visible. Just see, he's taking care of everything. And you can also find out, just see, I can live with less. If he doesn't supply it, should you get angry? No, the lesson is maybe I should live with less. Why not? So Krishna makes a powerful statement here. Don't lament, don't worry. He says, you're a devotee. And then he says that in this world there are two types of people, the divine and the demonic. I've discussed the divine at some length in other places. Now let me give some more emphasis, he says, on the demonic. Then he says some interesting things about them. He says, you do not know when to act and when to refrain from action. They don't know about proper cleanliness, good behavior, nor is truth found in them. He says, He says, He says, They describe the world as being without truth, without a basis, without God, brought about by mutual union, nothing more, caused by desire for sense gratification. So, a lot's going to be made out of this, this statement. But basically, he's saying that they miss God on every level, he says. They miss God on an existential level, on a cognitive level, what to speak of, the joy that he personifies. Satyam, Pratishta, Ishvara. These three words. They miss the, stent, the extent to which God is truth, God is consciousness the enduring existence of consciousness as opposed to manifestations of matter. They miss this point. If they think about consciousness, they think that it is a product of matter. At one point, matter became alive, and it's growing, living matter, like Darwin. I read an article recently in a in an academic journal that Briga was also published in. And uh, the article was about, it was entitled, Darwin... Charles Darwin meets the Srimad Bhagavatam, something like that. And what's a, a devotee author, and he made the point, kind of an obvious point, but but um, most good points are obvious, but not everybody sees them, <laughs> which makes them good points. But he made the point that uh, Charles Darwin and Srimad Bhagavatam are in much agreement in that they both say that material life is really about the struggle for existence. Survival of the fittest is the law. Bhagavatam says, Jivo Jivasya Jivanam. One living being is food for another. Charles Darwin came out of the Christian world, if you will, at a time when Christianity was getting some power from science, power, in, in to be the prevailing religious worldview, because Christian people involved in in science, like medicine, and particularly and and, and so forth, were finding cures to things that the previous religious traditions at the time in Europe uh, only tried to cure by, in effect, ineffectively by what became later known as superstition sorcery and and so forth it's very interesting to think about all this having much of the credibility for Christianity came less from its its doctrine per se but from uh, findings in the natural world by scientific minded people who had to, Christianity as their religion and then some of them some of them of course this became a crisis I don't know I don't know much that much about it but I started to think that Christianity was a little bit bifurcated from from like being a, a like a comprehensive metaphysical world view that other traditions sought to answer things on so many levels They imported in in, in science, did away with paganism, and then many of the Christians themselves became doubtful about about Christianity. And Charles Darwin was was one of them, because the idea, basic idea, was that God is good, and and when he saw the extent to which the world was mean, and as Bhagavatam said, says one living being is food for another, he saw the extent to this. Of the 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 meanness and the survival of the fittest, and he thought he he reached the conclusion there can be no God. No God could create a world like this that's so mean. Just to look carefully at nature and how it works, and there are apparently some very prominent examples of certain insects and such things. Just one that's living for the apparently just lives for the sake of being lived upon striking examples in the world he reached the conclusion that can't be a god he became atheistic and then he fashioned his natural order life is going on by a natural order and the driving force behind that is life's struggle the instinct to, to survive to compete to dominate it's very mean and so he reached an atheistic conclusion, but Sumat Bhagavatam reaches the s- exact same conclusion about material life as Charles Darwin. It's mean. Land of exploitation, one living being is food for another. It's not a pretty picture. You look very closely at it. Therefore, People don't want to look closely at it. <laughs> when Darwin looked closely at it, he lost so much impetus for life and and what was the apparent beauty of life? His whole idea of this, uh, aesthetic sensibility kind of just evaporated. His liking, previous liking for the arts and poetry and so forth, the finer things of life, when he saw what was inside at the core of it all, and that became he became preoccupied with that. And oh, it, it, dressing it up in so many ways, it, it still remained unappealing. He knew what it was inside. If you don't know what it's like at the core, then you can be deceived by the packaging. But he had penetrated that core to a large extent, to the point that that, that Srimad Bhagavatam does as well. And due to that, he reached an atheistic conclusion. But in Bhagavatam, that same conclusion about material life leads to a super-theistic conclusion. I started to think about that article and the implications of that. I'm not a student of science, and I'm not a student of Christianity. first thing that struck me was that in the struggle for existence, survival of the fittest, Then, what place does compassion show and self-sacrifice and so forth? And Of course, I thought it couldn't be something that I've just thought of. Certainly evolutionists must have thought of this and tried to find a way to explain activity that seems to go against the drive for survival in itself seems out of place in the world that's driven by just the, the necessity to survive at any cost, that someone would sacrifice their own life for the sake of another life. And of course they do have their explanations, evolutionists. But I reasoned that, before looking into it a little bit, that the only explanation must be that this at some point becomes part of the practical strategy particularly in human society, for, for evolving. So what happens then, if you want to play that out, is that at a certain point, survival of the fittest turns to survival of the kindest. In other words, if we have to factor into human life some kindness and some giving and some self-sacrificing in order to, to, to continue to exist... As a, as a species, we as humans have a sense of, a, of being part of a species, not just being an individual, and a sense of preserving the, the species, rather than just preserving myself. So to do that, logically, people reach the conclusion at some point that Acts of giving and charity and self-sacrifice, this, this will enable us to exist. We should stop war, this doesn't make any sense. We should do away with the things that, that bring about this sense of selfishness and so forth, and, and bias and bigotry, and, and, and in this way if we are to survive, we have to turn to whoever is the kindest, most kind, they will, they will survive. And Srimad Bhagavatam, of course, it goes in that direction. Hmm? It says that survival in material existence is a struggle for the fittest. But survival in the ultimate issue, survival will be realized by he who is the kindest, who will become the most self-sacrificing, the most giving, the kindest. That person will survive completely. That person will never die. This is the theory of Srimad Bhagavatam. And we see it practically. The gopis, Radharani, they want to die. They've given so much. They've given everything to Krishna. Krishna left them, still they're giving everything to Krishna. Krishna left them, of course, to show just how much they give. How unconditional is their love and giving and self-sacrifice. So extreme at one point, Radharani says, "I can't bear this any longer. I have to kill myself. I feel I must. I, I can't bear the pain of Krishna's separation. But I know that if I kill myself, that'll bring pain to Him, and I can't live with that. I can't die knowing I gave pain to Krishna. So I have to stay alive. So it's so strong is the self-giving that she cannot kill herself. Do you understand?" This is perfect idea of survival. Hmm. Darwin meets at some level and read a, a Bhagavatam, but without Sadhu Sangha, he distorts the Siddhanta. He only gets part of it right. If he had Sadhusanga and good tikka, commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam, then he could understand. Yes, material life is like this struggle for existence, survival of the fittest, and ultimately who will be most fit. Be the one who gives the most, who makes the most sacrifice. When it comes to this, then you can live forever. There's no question of death. Then you can transcend death by giving. This way, we should also learn to look at the world and the world strategies and so forth. Again, as we said earlier, don't don't read the book and just uh, and just to gather information. Then, in a dogmatic way, read in good association they have a dynamic understanding. Here, said that they say there's no controller. So you have people like Nietzsche, he said, God is dead. Right? But what does he really mean? He was, if you look carefully, he was, he, he was against the, the church, and conception of, of God. I saw a movie about your Martin Luther, well-known here in Scandinavia. He was a heretic. He was against the church, but, but he was for God. <laughs> against just indulgences and, and and so many things in the name of religion, buying your way into heaven and so forth to keep the, fo- the pope in silk. So you have to be dynamic thinkers, be successful in in Krishna consciousness, to be divine in the real sense. So Krishna here mentions these people. Hmm? He says, who follow the wrong. Arrive at the conclusion of Darwin that not only is the world a struggle for existence, but things are going on by natural order only, by this, by this alone, rather than by, I say, by intelligent design. Now Christians have some argument, scientists for intelligent design. They've written some books and so forth. But it's not to our advantage to try to discuss this with evolutionists on their terms we should bring them on our terms and speak philosophically rather than scientifically because it's already been proven that science doesn't answer everything doesn't satisfy everyone Right? we should go to philosophy and discuss then we discuss Darwin on the basis of philosophy after all his conclusions arose out of philosophical thinking now to put philosophy aside and theology aside and say that everything will be answered by science, seems a little fanatical and unreasonable. We have to learn to turn things on what the opposition uh, accuses you of, turn it back on them. They like to think, who doesn't think, who believes in God has deviated from logic, from reasoning. I've commented here that sometimes we are accustomed to hearing the argument that the religious do not accept the reality of the material world and thus manufacture the idea of the spiritual realm. What Krishna is saying here that most one recognizes the different levels of divine involvement in the world. Brahman, Sat, existence, consciousness, ultimate existence. That conscious matter comes from consciousness rather than consciousness coming from matter. Without acknowledging that. Without acknowledging Chit the cognizance in every atom and the joy that life is ultimately about bhagwan then they, they they miss the whole picture of what life's about so it's again just the opposite so this way krishna basically defines the atheistic mentality then he goes on in the balance of the chapter to decide to describe so many different um Demonic qualities. Concluding, as I mentioned earlier, with the idea that that the divine way of life is comes to us through revelation. Therefore, we should have regard for scripture.